Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Mahana Sar, non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Today is September 21st, 2022, and I am delighted to be here with Basil Faraj. Basil received his doctorate in anthropology and sociology from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. He is also a policy analyst at Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. <clears throat> Basil's research centers on the Israeli prison system, the impact of Israeli torture and violence on Palestinian prisoners, and the ways in which prisons have come to reflect the broader colonial reality under which Palestinians live. One year ago this month, six Palestinian political prisoners escaped from the Israeli high-security Gilboa or Jalboa prison near the city of Nazareth. Over the course of several months, the prisoners dug a tunnel from underneath their cell floor, through the prison grounds, and out to the outside world. Escaping on foot, they eluded a full-scale manhunt for nearly two weeks. Though they were eventually recaptured, Palestinians hailed them as the heroes of the Freedom Tunnel. The prisoner issue is a central one for Palestinians, especially those living under Israeli occupation. Yet it tends not to receive as much attention in the West. Bass's groundbreaking research on Palestinian prisoners, coupled with his own experiences as a child visiting his father in prison, make him an ideal guest to discuss this topic. So Basel, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Ma. Thanks to you. So let's start with some basic definitions. In our discussion today, we'll be talking a lot about Israel's, quote, carceral policies, unquote, and about Israel as a, quote, carceral, carceral regime, unquote. So can you please share with our listeners what scholars mean when they use the term carceral? Yes, so um, thanks again, Maha, for inviting me. Um, so um, I'm sure lots of the listeners now have already like listened, heard the, the term carceral, carceral, carceral state, uh, particularly perhaps in, in the context of the U.S. where you have, you know, mass industrial um, uh, um, imprison, imprisonment industrial complex. The term itself comes from, from Latin, from the term carcer, which, which means to imprison or to captivate. Um, However, in academic discourse and academic uh, academic work, the term has kind of evolved. It does not particularly solely refer to um, to imprisonment, as in the physical space of the prison itself, but it also means and refers to the condition of surveillance, of captivity, of monitoring, uh, um, and of course of of of, um, of the physical imprisonment itself. However. Um, uh, I think that's what's what's unique about this term is that it it refers to a condition under which populations live. So, for example, if we talk about Palestine, we are talking about not only you know the the um, the impact the Israeli prison regime has had uh, uh, on Palestinian on the Palestinian population since, since Israel's violent inception, but also on the ways in which Israel has been trying to deal with the with the Palestinian population. So we talk about the, the checkpoints, the monitoring that they, that uh, that exists exists around the checkpoints, around the settlements, around the wall, uh, the ways in which Palestinians have to apply for for um, for permits to be able to leave to enter. So in a way, and just to reiterate what I what I what myself at least. Um, mean when I refer to Israel as a carceral state is not only 
the mechanisms of punishment that Israel employs inside inside its its, its uh, multiple prisons, but it's also um, the way it deals or treats the the occupied population as a subject for monitoring, for constant surveillance, and for punishment. And I think actually just to to, to give the the listeners other um, uh, uh, you know other forms of of of, of carcerality, you could think of also electronic surveillance, for example. Uh, you could think of um, uh, monitoring the cell phones of people, uh, which Israel Israel has also been employing. So, so in a way, it's a very broad term to describe the condition um, under which subjugated populations live. And in Palestine, I think it's very visible and very clear um, the way Israel has been employing these tactics of, of surveillance um, uh, to punish and to detain and to constantly have the Palestinian uh, um, fully aware that they are being monitored. I think that's that's what um, uh, what I refer to the term uh, by what I refer by using this term. Thank you. So it's not just the physical imprisonment, but it's all the apparatuses that surround that in terms of surveillance, in terms of monitoring. And I think a really important point that you just mentioned that I think um, eludes a lot of people is that Palestinians are constantly aware that they're constantly being surveilled and watched and ready and sort of always on the lookout for Israel to punish them whenever they, you know, anytime. And maybe I just add on that actually, and, uh, and that also is part of you know, the carceral tactics that Israel has been employing, uh, confining that population into a small strip of land, uh, controlling what comes in, what comes out, uh, and who can enter and who can leave as well. So in a way that that expands, you know, um, the metaphor, and it's also constantly used by Palestinian prisoners themselves, that we have in Palestine, we have a small prison and a large prison. The small prison refers to the physical, uh, you know, site where people are, are, get imprisoned, so the jails themselves, and then the large prison is is the reality of the occupied territories and 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 the 1948 areas and the Gaza Strip, of course, where um, where Israel has been employing this this uh, carceral tactics to control the Palestinian population. Yeah, it gives new meaning to what we hear Palestinians referring to the occupied territories and especially Gaza as a large prison, as a large open air prison. So it's not just the physical confinement, but it's all the mechanisms of control that go with that. Basil, you recently wrote in Ashabaka about Israel's use of administrative detention, which we'll post in the show notes. Can you please tell us what is administrative detention, what are its origins, and how does it fit into Israel's carceral regime? Yeah, so before I address particularly what administrative detention means, I have to say that um, the Israeli judicial, judicial, judicial system um, uh, in particular, um, the military law where Palestinians are um, uh, uh, get prosecuted, it functions on the premise of security, uh, of maintaining security, of maintaining public order. So, in a way, to understand um, administrative detention, which is the which is a policy and practice that allows Israel to detain any Palestinian at any given time um, uh, without subjecting subjecting them to trial or to persecution under the premise that they pose that the individual poses a threat to Israel's security and public order. So what happens is that Israel can, the military um, commander um, can, is, uh, sorry, the, the military, uh, um, uh, yes, the, command, the head of the military army, the military division in the West Bank can issue a detention order against the Palestinian, just simply saying that this, this individual poses a threat to Israel's security, which means, which allows the Israeli state to detain them for um, an, an unspecified duration of time. So this can be from four, uh, six months, four months, or three months, but constantly uh, uh, um, permiss it's constantly permissible to, to renew this detention order. So um, 
it's very arbitrary. It can mean it can uh, be applied against any Palestinian uh, if if the Israeli state or judicial system believes that they pose a threat. When there's where there is no, there's never a justification for the reasons of of of, of arrest. So again, um, this policy um, is completely arbitrary. And and just to kind of historicize its use, it has been used before Israel's existence. So before Israel came to um, existence, of course, through violence in 1948. The British colonial mandate over Palestine had issued its own defense regulations in 1945, which allowed it to detain, to arbitrarily detain any Palestinian at any given time, um, um, citing similar concerns, which is you know security, uh, maintaining public order, um, and also to further contextualize its use. Um, I have to mention that this practice is used worldwide. Of course, I mean you have seen you have you, you for example our listeners might um, uh, might recall that. Uh, the British uh, colonial power also has used this in Northern Ireland, for example. But Israel has been using this practice, uh, as I have been mentioning, uh, mentioning um, arbitrarily. Um, it has a criminalizing nature of, uh, to its use, where um, it constantly portrays the Palestinian as a potential threat to be. So when, when for example, when the prosecutor or the, milit- or the, um, the, the um, security agency, the Shabak, um, claim that, that the individual Palestinian uh, uh, presents a threat to the, to the security of Israel without without providing justifications or evidence, they are um, concretely um, uh, fortifying this notion that the Palestinian subject is a threat to the Israeli state. And I think maybe we might go into this later on, but but the entire military court system functions on this premise that that the Palestinian um, as a subject already racialized by the Israeli by, by the Israeli state as an inferior subject, of course, vis-a-vis the Israeli Jewish um, uh, settlers, um, that this subject constantly presents a threat. But uh, but I think the core the core um, and, and this this also explains why Palestinians have been resisting this is that it leaves them in a state of of, of kind of constant. Uh, um, um, waiting. You never know when you will be released. You never know why you, you have been arrested in the first place. Uh, uh, and of course, you can imagine what happens to the family itself, to the children, if the person is, uh, you know, is married, if he or she are married. Um, so, so it really also has a psychological impact on the Palestinian population, I think. And it's one of the core, and, and just maybe to finalize, it's, I think administrative detention is one of the central policies that Israel uses within its carceral uh, system to kind of instill fear also, because in, in reality, and just to kind of um, uh, to stress this point again, any Palestinian su- is subject to this policy. Any Palestinian can be detained at any given time, and you would never know the duration of this arrest. Thank you. So really, it's a lot of it is has to do with the arbitrariness and the unknownness. So administrative detention can happen at any time. You, you will not necessarily know the reason why you're being administratively detained for any period of time that can continue for any uh, duration of time. And the families never know what's happening either. So that's administrative detention, but there are Palestinian political prisoners, what Palestinians refer to as political prisoners, Israelis refer to them as security prisoners, who are in Israeli jails. So according to Abdelmir, the Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Today, there are 4,000, about 4,650 Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails. About 750 or so of them are administrative detainees, but of the total, about 3,700 of them are adult male prisoners who presumably have been, have gone through a court trial and have been convicted in Israeli military court. 
So almost all Palestinians consider their imprisonment to also be unjust, even though technically they went through a trial. So can you please tell us a little bit about the Israeli military court system and why Palestinians view it as inherently unjust and unfair? Yeah, I think that, I think that's a very good question, and particularly since we were discussing uh, administrative detention. So, if we want to understand how what the Israeli legal system, we have to first um, uh, uh, take note that there are two laws that function in the in the West Bank um, in the occupied territory. So, the first one is the civil law that's subject um, uh, to Israeli settlers who reside in the same territory uh, as the Palestinians. So, settlers who live in the West Bank now currently and the second is the military law, law that israel has established upon its, its its occupation of the west bank and the gaza strip in 1967. so there's already a differential treatment treatment between jewish israelis and palestinians um now military law now if we go to the second layer which is the military courts um the military courts were established in 1967 uh following um uh, um uh, um a military order that established uh, uh, military courts on the third day, I think, uh, of the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, if we want to kind of understand, if we want to, to hear, if we, want, if we listen kind of um, without understanding the context to a military court, you might see the same things that you would see in television. So you would see a prosecutor, you would see uh, the tra transcribers, transcribers, you would see the judges. Of course, the judges sit. Um, on a dais, you know, in front of the of the of the detainees and their families. Um, so when you enter military courts, you might have the sense of okay, maybe something is happening here. This, you know, this is a court; it might be a fair trial. But in reality, Israel extracts confessions from Palestinians through torture and violence. They do they deny them their rights through the transportations upon detention. Um, the Adami, for example, has constantly documented violations of Palestinians um, upon upon their arrest um, and through their interrogation. Israel utilizes uh, brutal means of interrogation as a tool against them. So, in a way, that's one 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 of the facets in which the Israeli uh, military court system is unfair. Is that it gives precedence to uh, uh, to confessions or or uh, yet confessions extracted. Uh, through torture and violence. That's one aspect of this. The second and most important aspect is that the Israeli military court system itself functions on the basis of, of military law. Now, as I have mentioned previously in, in my previous answers to administrative detention, um, military law itself um, and the military orders that Israel has issued over the years is already views Palestinians as inherently um, inferior, as inherently dangerous to the Israeli state. So we have the similar, you have a similar um, notions being thrown in the military orders, the thousands of orders that Israel has has published, where they depict where, you know, where, where you have the terms such as security, maintaining public order. And to, to kind of hone in this point, I want to share with you um, uh, one of the military orders that Israel uses currently to try to try um, to try Palestinians, it's military order number one six five one. It was issued in in two thousand nine. Now, it discusses uh, what happens if if a Palestinian throws a stone at an Israeli jeep at Israeli soldiers, um, uh, and it, it, it explains the maximum years of sentencing that each um, offense they refer to it as offenses would entail. Um, now. Now, this same document, when you read it, you can understand how the Israeli state and its military persecution, its military courts, um, uh, and, and of course, the military order itself already views Palestinians as, um, as I have been mentioning, as inherently um, inferior, as a potential threat to the Israeli state. So, for example, um, 
uh, one of the one of the military um, one of the sections of the military order states that if a Palestinian is caught waving a flag or affixing a, vla a flag, um, they might be uh, persecuted and punished and sentenced for ten years of of, of, of imprisonment. So you can see that um, you know these military courts, um, despite kind of the the the, the attempt um, uh, to portray them as fair as just. They really serve a political purpose, and I think that's that's where um, the core issue with military courts is: is that it belongs to an occupying to an occupying regime, so it can never be already. It can already it can never it can never provide a fair trial to the Palestinians. That's the first um, uh, part, uh, and second, that it it treats it treats Palestinians as subjects that deserve punishment. And I, I and maybe we have the time later on to discuss kind of the military order and how it functions, but. Yeah, that's that's the sense you would get if you go as a visitor to military courts. You would see how the spatial arrangement itself of the military court um, portrays this kind of power difference, power and racial difference, where the Palestinians placed behind this cage, where the military, where the soldiers are present. It's a military court, of course. You can imagine soldiers are there. They're not, you know, the common civil uh, judges and and prosecutors. Um, and and again, I think I want to kind of reiterate this point again that. Um, these, uh, and it has already been said by multiple Palestinian prisoners, these courts serve a political function, which is to suppress the Palestinian resistance, to kind of distort um, the collective will of the Palestinian political movement, um, to portray Palestinians, as you have mentioned, Maha, as terrorists, instead of, of as political prisoners. And by the way, Israel has never um, accepted this categorization. It does not treat Palestinians as prisoners of war or as political prisoners. As you have been mentioning, they do treat them, and, 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 and this is encoded also in the Israeli prison services documents, they, they treat them as security prisoners. So once again, we have this notion of security that Israel constantly tries to kind of portray and to, and to reinforce through its laws, through its own military orders, um, my disconnected. I was <laughs> sorry. So yes, just to reiterate um, that uh, why, why Palestinians view military courts as unfair and unjust, um, in addition to the harassment that they receive in interrogation centers and the admissibility of of confessions um, uh, taken through force and and torture. I think it's also because these courts serve a, a political uh, uh, purpose. And uh, numerous political prisoners have been mentioning this, that the Israeli state's uh, uh, functions, it's, that, that the courts themselves are theatrical, um, and that they serve to dissuade Palestinians from resisting the occupation and to depict them as terrorists who deserve their punishment. While in reality, I think nothing, I think the entire judicial, uh, Israeli judicial system, system plays a part in the occupation of the Palestinian people. And that's how we should view it, and that's how we should treat it. So I think it's really important to, to underscore what you just said there, which is that the military court system for Palestinians doesn't exist as a neutral arbiter. It exists as part of the carceral regime of surveillance, of punishment, and of trying to dissuade Palestinians from any sort of political expression under the cover of security. So there is no presumption of innocence. There is no you know, jury of your peers. There's nothing like that at all. So every element of the military court system is part of the military occupation apparatus. So, those, so when we hear a conviction rate in military court system of 99.7%, for example, it's precisely for that reason. Palestinians don't get to see the evidence against them. They don't get to be tried in front of a jury of their peers, and there is no presumption of innocence. 
So that's really, so even those convictions, they're called security prisoners by the Israelis, but the Palestinians really see them as political prisoners. So thank you for that. So just to remind you, I'm Mahana Saar and I'm here with Basil Faraj talking about Israel's prison system and the experiences of Palestinian prisoners and their families. So let's turn to that last part about Palestinian prisoners and their families. So your research is focused on Palestinian political prisoners and administrative detainees, but the prisoner issue is also a very personal one for you. Your father, Abdul Razak Faraj, has spent a total of over 19 years in Israeli prisons under multiple periods of administrative detention. You've written some really moving essays about what it was like for you growing up while your father was in prison. And we'll post these in the show notes as well. Can you please give our listeners a glimpse into what was life into what life was like for you as the son of a Palestinian political prisoner? Um, well, I think uh, perhaps I, I would say that it's it's the absence of the of the father figure that was perhaps the the, the most difficult when I was growing up. Um, I think as as common, uh, you've already mentioned the statistics, but as common with uh, with uh, thousands of families in Palestine, uh, I think having one or two of the family members absent, whether it be the, the father, the mother, the brother, the sister, uh, it already kind of just creates a, a, a severe impact on the family itself. Um, as a child, my, as, as my, myself, as a child, of course, growing up, I, I had numerous doubts, uh, questions of why, why was my father arrested? And particularly because he was under administrative detention, it was even more difficult to understand why would this, you know, okay, why would he um, uh, tell me that, you know, he might be released on this particular date and suddenly we would receive Kind of an extension, a detention renewal order uh, of, of yet another six months. So you can imagine what would happen to a child, you know, awaiting for the news, having a, a specific date set in his mind that his father or mother would be released, and suddenly you'd have this, uh, you know, uh, uh, that you'd have to wait yet another six months for the potential, uh, for the thought of being, you know, of having your father with you. But I think uh, more generally, I think it has, it does. Uh, indeed have um, an impact of on, on Palestinian families. And this is not to romanticize what does it mean to have an absent you know, f- figure, um, family figure, um, or to kind of over- overburden, it, overburden it with emotions. But I think the Israeli occupation um, also plays that card, where uh, you know, a, a missing uh, a person of the family is also an attempt to teach a lesson to, to other Palestinians that this might be your fate if and when you dare to, to resist the occupation. And I think, uh, and that's what, that's how we understand, um, or, or that's how we might understand how the Israeli occupation um, treats Palestinian children when they arrest them, right? And when they arrest their, you know, uh, their, their, their fathers and the ways, that, the way they arrest people from their houses. I think the psychological impact has already been addressed by multiple people in Palestine. Um, and I, I definitely think that this should be addressed uh, even more. Um, uh, but I think uh, it might be, um, and I can imagine this now, but it might be very difficult to explain to a child um, uh, living in Palestine why um, uh, why is this you know why 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 is my father not released uh, once the detention order is, is terminated once it's over. Um, but then I think, of course, growing up for me for myself as a Palestinian, you understand that this is part of the occupation and how it functions, um, and that you know. Um, so I hope I answered the question in, in some way or another. <laughs> I think you did. I think the unknowing, that, that sort of living in a constant state of unknowing, and then when administrative detention orders are renewed multiple times, 
there's a sense of not being able to have hope, to have a future. So if you think your father's going to be released on this date in time to celebrate your birthday, for example, but then that renewal order is issued and then they miss your birthday or what have you. I think as a child, just having that security of being able to plan in the future gets robbed from you. And I think that's one of the things when you say that the administrative detention system is not just about the detainees, but about their families as well. I think that's a, a crucial element of that. And I think it also speaks to the, <clears throat> the arbitrariness and also the, the pervasiveness of the occupation. When we say occupation, when Palestinians say occupation, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand how much it messes with people's lives. You know, it's not just checkpoints, it's not just detention, but it's all the elements of time and planning and future and family that affects every single person under occupation. Exactly. <clears throat> Sorry. So your father's latest arrest was in September of 2019. According to Abdul Mir, he has been subjected to multiple forms of physical and psychological torture. We'll post a link to Abdul Mir's report in the show notes, so I won't ask you to describe the torture he endured. But would you mind sharing with us your father's current condition? Um, yeah, so he's um, he's still awaiting trial. He's in in trial and awaiting sentencing. He's been um, you know uh, undergoing the um, trial in military court in Hofer, uh, which is in the vicinity of Ramallah city, uh, for the past three years. So we're still waiting, uh, um, you know, for the for kind of determination of this of the trial period and 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 hoping for the best uh, for the sentencing part. <laughs> Hoping that we would welcome him very soon to the house. Inshallah. So I mentioned Adamir's report of uh, your father's treatment. Adamir, just to remind our listeners and viewers, is also one of the seven organizations that one of the seven Palestinian NGOs that Israel recently ordered to be shut down. So looking at the larger picture, how does Israel's use of administrative detention and its shutting down of Palestinian NGOs work together to repress Palestinians? Yeah, so I think it, 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 they function, both mechanisms, so the shutting down of organizations and administrative detention, function under the logic of criminalizing uh, any um, uh, social and activist uh, work that, um, that Palestinians uh, carry out in, in, the, in, in Palestine. Um, I think particularly with the organizations that have been shut down, there has been also a political purpose these organizations such as Abdamir have been exposing Israel's violations. They have been documenting what Israel has been doing uh, for prisoners in Gaza and the West Bank for children in particular for, the, for one of the other organizations. So you would see, you, you could understand um, um, uh, their logic is to shut down uh, and to force shut maybe the work and the voice of Palestinians who are uh, forceful, forcefully, um, forcefully uh, um, uh, raising their voice against the occupation and also galvanizing and, and kind of um, gathering um, public opinion internationally against Israeli practices. So, and I think, you know, the first one, administrative detention is an attempt to kind of lock in people. And I think the shutting down of organizations um, is also an attempt to lock out, um, you know, the, the image, the voice of the Palestinian people that, the, that the, these organizations have been doing for many years. And also Israel has been doing this under very similar pretext, by the way. So they, the justification for closing these organizations is very similar to the, what, what they use um, 
for administrative detention. So it's you no know, security, uh, protecting protecting public order. Uh, it's a similar logic, and this might also um, have the listeners understand a bit more how is how the notion of security is well entrenched in Israeli practice and in discourse in discourse and how it actually feeds on um, this kind of racial and violent uh, practices of the Israeli state where any voice against against Israel whether it be it doesn't have to be political also it can be social so it's it's a criminalization of Palestinian livelihood I think and of the of the attempt of um, of Palestinians to to resist in various ways the Israeli occupation um, and and um, uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, Israel also does subject um, you know activists to administrative detention and you can also see this you know as as a full circle so it's not only these organizations also activists who are arrested uh, and in the attempt to suppress their voice and suppress their work. Yeah. So when we think about Israel as a carceral regime, that full circle, I think, is a is a good analogy. So it's locking people in through administrative detention, locking people out so international observers can't see what's happening, locking up individual activists and individuals who may raise their voice, and then shutting down the organizations that try to bring attention and bring awareness to those people who are raising their voices. So it's a total attempt to keep all, all Palestinian political, social, cultural expression down, while at the same time ensuring or trying to ensure that others aren't aware of that suppression. Okay. So during his years of administrative detention, your father has launched several hunger strikes to protest his imprisonment without charge or trial. Late last month, Khalil Awawda also secured, uh, secured a promise to be released from administrative detention after he had uh, launched a grueling six month long hunger strike. And just a few weeks ago on September 1st, the Palestinian prisoners movement announced a victory after the Israeli prison administration agreed to several of their demands for more humane treatment in order to avert a mass open-ended hunger strike that they had called. So what role do you think hunger strikes play in the Palestinian prisoner movement? And why would the Israeli prison administration fear a mass open-ended hunger strike? Yeah, so for the, for the first question, um, hunger strikes have been used uh, by Palestinian prisoners over the years. Um, you know, it's, it, it has constantly emerged as one of the kind of the last resort um, of, uh, of demanding their rights from the Israeli carceral authorities, so the IPS, the Israeli Prison Service. Um, why do they use them? It's because I think, and here we can, we can, you know, there's different um, uh, analysis, but it's 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 the last resort. So when Israel, um, you know, continues to violate prisoners' rights, when they um, take away their right for to to books, to education, um, when they constantly, um, uh, you know, use administrative detention as an easy way out, uh, as an easy policy. Um, then Palestinian, uh, uh, and we've seen this over the past years, and they resort to this as a, as a last um, uh, tactic, but it has, I think, in my analysis, analysis at least, it has um, its own power. Uh, um, why does Israel uh, fear it? And particularly, it's, they do not, I think, I think they particularly fear um, a mass open-ended hunger strike as the, ones you, as the one you have mentioned. It's because they have been trying uh, over the past uh, years, and particularly 
um, perhaps since the signing of the Oslo Accords to kind of dismantle the Palestinian political movement. So um, in the past, the Palestinian political movement was um, was perhaps more unified. It was a collective movement. Israel, as it, as it has been doing outside prisons, um, they have been trying to kind of dismantle the unity of the Palestinian movement. So any action that emerges in a unified fashion, so for example, the um, the way prisoners have responded to the heroic escape of the six prisoners, for example, as a, um, uh, um, the recent uh, call for a mass hunger strike. Israel fears these tactics, which is aff it affirms primarily uh, the political nature of the of the prison of the Palestinian prisoners. So the political nature of their imprisonment, and and I think more simply, it it, it asserts to the power that a unified movement can have. Over the past in the past in the sixties and seventies. Israel would would uh, 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 would specifically uh, uh, fear a unified mass hunger strike because it knew that when the prisoners uh, unify, they can really exert their demands. So I think in the you know what what you have been mentioning, um, and by the way, there's there's a there's a talk, there's talk of um, of a potential hunger strike by thirty administrative detainees by the end of this month uh, as well, um, but. But a particular, but the emergence of a mass unified hunger strike um, is, I think, is a political expression also of, of unity, and um, it fears it, it scares Israel because it can it can um, uh, achieve uh, uh, more demands, I think, and more rights. Um, and Israel again has been trying to dismantle the political movement, the prisoner the prisoners movement over the past years, and I think once this emerges, it's uh, an assertion that. Israel's attempt has not been fully complete. Yeah, I think it's important also to to reiterate that the Palestinian political prisoner movement has a great deal of uh, political capital in Palestinian society as a whole. In part because they seem to operate, they seem to transcend the political rivalries between, for example, Fatah and Hamas, and so forth. And so they have a kind of moral authority among a lot of Palestine in Palestinian society more broadly which is also something that I think Israel fears. Is that, is that a fair statement, you think? I think so too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, uh, and and the, the prisoners movement has also had, you know, over the years, um, their own role in, in, in Palestinian political affairs as well, because of, as you said, because of, 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 the, of their status. Uh, uh, and that's why a collective move, a collective uh, move by the prisoners is really very powerful. And this has happened in the past, and I think it has happened in recent, recent years as well. Okay, thank you for that. So you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, um, Israel taking, confiscating books, banning books, and so forth. In an essay that you wrote for the Institute for Palestine Studies, you wrote about other forms of prisoner resistance, particularly writing and pursuing university education. And we'll post that essay as well. You called your piece Define Carcerality. Can you please tell us a bit about why writing and education in particular are so central for Palestinian prisoners and how the Israeli regime tries to suppress their cultural pursuits? Yeah, um, so in a, in a similar fashion, I'll try to contextualize first, um, uh, you know, what does it mean to have writing um, culture productions inside prisons? So prior to um, the 1990s, the Palestinians, the Palestinian prisoners, did not have access to adequate access to to books and 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 um, and pens and and paper, and they had only managed to secure um, 
the riots through hunger strikes. So this also links to the previous question. Um, uh, however, over the over you know over over the um, uh, recent years, Israel has been trying to kind of control um, the Palestinian prisoners' education system um, to restrict the number of books that are allowed to prison. Currently, for example, in offer prison, um, you're only allowed to, um, and under certain circumstances, to bring in two books for each prisoner, and you have to ask for permission before the Israeli prison service subject, subject, subjects the book, the books for inspection. Uh, so there's lots of um, kind of uh, an attempt to control what enters the prison. But why is it important? It's because I think um, over, I mean, I think it's also, this has been constant for the prisoners movement, uh, that the prisons have have been referred to as, uh, uh, as a school, as a university. There's uh, lots of uh, educational, um, political education, educational uh, um, uh, sessions that take place inside prisons. Um, uh, the political parties themselves try to teach uh, uh, the prisoners, uh, try to have um, collaborative uh, discussion groups, uh, reading groups as well. Um, but why does Israel, um, and I, here I want to read just also, I want to read um, a quote from the Supreme Court of Israel. Um, so in 2011, the Israeli authorities declared that Palestinian prisoners would no longer be able to pursue their higher education at the Open University in Israel. Um, so Adele, which is a Palestinian uh, human rights organization, petitioned against the Supreme Court's decision. So the court stated in its ruling, and I quote here, that higher education is not a right for people classified as security prisoners. And yet in another petition, the Supreme Court um, uh, reiterated its position by arguing, and I quote, higher education funding for prisoners is from terrorist organizations at, and aims to strengthen their positions within the prisons. So Israel views uh, education as, or views education as, um, you know, as a right to non-security uh, prisoners. And since Israel, Israel views Palestinians as security prisoners, they view this kind of, you know, it's, it's a privilege in a way that they, they do not deserve. And I think that's why Palestinian prisoners have been trying constantly to smuggle um, their writings outside prison. So there's no way of, there's no easy way of sharing what prisoners write except for smuggling, for example. Prisoners have been constantly writing, publishing novels, poems, um, scholarly work. Uh, uh, and in my own research, research as well, I treat Palestinian prisoners as, as scholars, as, uh, as academics, because they are. Uh, you know, they have been conceptually uh, providing us with concepts to understand Israeli occupation. Um, but they have been doing this creatively. And that's what I did in my text. I discuss how, how despite um, Israel's attempt to restrict what enters prisons, despite their attempt to restrict the number of books, um, to kind of minimize that interaction between prisoners and the outside world, prisoners have been able to kind of devise um, novel means to um, to share their knowledge with us on the outside, to um, to kind of continue that status and to reinforce it of prisons as as universities. And I think you would hear this in Palestine a lot when Palestinian prisoners leave prisons, they discuss this kind of you know collective aspect of of the educational system of the prison itself and how um, it does teach, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an educational institution, I think. And I think that's, to go back to your question at the beginning, that's why they fear um, the Israelis, that educational system as well, because it does reinforce ideas. It, it raises, you know, uh, strengthens the notion of the collective inside prison as well and strengthens the political nature of the political imprisonment, I think. Thank you for that. 
there, it strikes me as there's an irony, which is that this, this, these carceral policies of administrative detention and imprisonment in the military court system is to try to stamp out Palestinian political consciousness. And yet it seems to have the opposite effect of reinforcing and deepening Palestinian political consciousness, both among the prisoners as well as Palestinians outside of it. And so it also speaks to the, just to the dead end of the Israeli carceral policies here, that there's, there's no end game that you can see. Uh, and, yet they, and yet, obviously, Israel continues to employ these practices. So what can we do? So in your piece in the Shabaka, you call on the International Palestine Solidarity uh, Community to work to end, in part, one of the things that you call for in terms of your policy recommendations is for international Palestine solidarity groups to work to end the exchange programs between Israeli and U.S. law enforcement agencies, like those highlighted in the deadly exchange campaign. And we'll link to that campaign in the show notes. So you've mentioned earlier that the use of prisons and imprisonment to target specific populations, subjugated populations, is not unique to the Palestinian case. So how do you see your research helping other groups of people who are targeted by carceral regimes around the world? Hmm. Um, I think uh, Israel is, has kind of managed to create itself, to create a status for itself as kind of the ultimate security state, um, the ultimate surveillance state. I think the Israel, as you have already like noted, it exports its knowledge to other parts of the world. It has not only been training, you know, having mutual uh, um, security programs with the United States, but also in Latin America, for example, where it has been doing, um, you know, violent work, teaching uh, 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 the armies of, and police of, of multiple nations how to suppress populations. So I think in a way, uh, if we, and that's my argument in my work as well, if we understand the Israeli carceral regime, we might be able to understand and see what might be, what might occur in other parts of the world. Israel is, um, is trying to, and perhaps our listeners know this, but it's, it has been trying to, to fortify that its status as, as um, you know, as an arm exporter, as a security knowledge exporter, a global exporter. Um, and uh, and one of this knowledge is the carceral knowledge, uh, the ways it, it you know to confine populations. And here I'm again to, to remind our listeners that we're talking about the broader um, tactics of surveillance and punishment. So um, Israel exports its knowledge to multiple parts of the world, and I think uh, one of those, um, uh, as I said, one of this knowledge is, is is how to confine, to better surveil and confine and punish populations. And I think what happens in Palestine, unfortunately, if we do not work against the Israeli occupation and and uh, and and work towards an end uh, uh, to this apartheid regime, might occur in other in other places as well. And um, and I think in that way, my research also um, examines uh, the possibilities for for resisting these carceral regimes. I think we might not have addressed this too much in, in our discussion today, but but the other part of the carceral uh, you know regime is is people's and, and prisoners' attempts to kind of conf constantly confront what occurs inside prisons and inside uh, carceral settings. And I think we can build upon this to, to better uh, uh, confront you know, the, 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 the violence, the racialization that occurs in multiple parts of the world, including Palestine, the United States, 
and Latin America. And I think if we um, if we address the Israeli the, the, the Palestinian issue, um, and by, by by issue I mean the occupation and the apartheid, we might be we might be able to also secure futures other 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 in other parts of the world as well. To, in order to stop Israel from becoming, you know, from, from exporting its knowledge and from continuing to export its knowledge to other parts of the world. So it sounds like what you're saying is that in many ways Israel is a harbinger for possibilities of other, like the greater emergence of carceral regimes in other parts of the world. And so part of what we're doing in terms of resisting against it and drawing attention to it and supporting Palestinian resistance to the Israeli carceral regime is to hopefully try to prevent or mitigate the export of these carceral regimes and policies of surveillance and confinement to other people, peoples around the world. So with that, uh, thank you so much, Vassal Faraj, for sharing your time and analysis today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMAP website www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one, on YouTube. And with that, I am Mahana Saad signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm-hmm.